I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey there, Professor Ello. Oh, that's a title I haven't heard in a while since school let out. Hey, Lukey B. See, I'm not the only one with uh, <laughs> fanciful nicknames. You've got one, too. How are you doing? I am doing pretty good. All is well in Corvallis, more or less. How about you? I'm good. I want to apologize um, because, as you can see over this Zoom call that we're on, I look pretty much like a tomato right now because Aww. I, as I often try to do, I try to sneak in a little jog right before showtime. You do do that. Which is a bad idea because, <laughs> well, I had to right now because it is July and it is raining every day where I live. And there was like uh, a small window of blue sky that I wanted to take advantage of. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I have some kind of physical thing going on where after I exercise, I will sweat for one to two hours. <laughs> like afterwards, like I, right now, I can't even take a drink of water because if I do, it'll be like in the cartoons <laughs> when somebody gets like shot full of holes and then they take a drink of water and they become a sprinkler. Nice. And that would be the last thing you'd need to see throughout the show. You could become so, um, a human slip and slide. People could just yeah. plug the hose into you and you could <laughs> totally make kids' days. Luckily, this is radio for the listeners, so they don't have to look at me. Unfortunately, you do. You look great. We're going to get through this. Uh, should we do the show? Sure. Why not? Hey, Molly, are we recording? We are recording. Okay. Awesome. Take it away, Elena. <laughs> From PRX, it's LiveWire. Recorded from our actual houses, welcome to the LiveWire House Party. This week with poet Ross Gay, writer Casey Sepp, and music from Colin Hay. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, live and direct from a small room just off his kitchen, the host of LiveWire, Lou. Thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in this week to the Livewire House Party. We've got a great show in store for you. Uh, The question we asked the audience this week was, tell us about a simple delight. Mm. Uh, It's a very stressful time (laughs) to Mm -hmm. be alive Mm -hmm. in this country. And, uh, you know, whenever we can find a delight somewhere, it's always a nice thing. Um, Do you have a simple delight, Elena Passarello? Uh, that you've been enjoying of late? Oh, yeah. So it's summertime, which mm-hmm. is grilling time. Right. And my uh, long-suffering partner, David, <laughs> makes these really good grilled turkey burgers. 
on a ciabatta with cheese and avocado and all these great fixins. And there's this moment after he's assembled them where I take it and I squish it in my mm-hmm. hands and then kind of rub it back and forth just a little bit so that all of the ingredients sort of meld together to make just this like connected bite. And I just, I love that feeling of just like the melding of the turkey burger. Mm. I also love his turkey burgers and I want to eat one right now. That's uh, that's why like the last bite of anything is the best bite. Ah. I want to open a restaurant. Don't you think? Because everything has had time to fully mingle. Mm. Like imagine like the last bite of a burrito or the mm. last bite of a grilled cheese sandwich. I don't know. I like the first sip of something, mm. the first sip of a well-made martini, the mm. first sip of coffee in the morning, mm. and like the last bite of something kind of delicious. Mm. That does sound good. Uh, we're recording this before I have my lunch, which I'm now realizing was a total mistake. <laughs> I think uh, a, a simple delight that I really love And the weird thing about my life these days is that in the before times, I used to travel Mm -hmm. constantly. So there was a lot of stuff happening here at my house that I just didn't even know was really going on, like with the pets. Mm. And now a part of each morning is that the cat, she will decide that she wants to go outside and explore the world Mm-hmm. At at some point between 4 a.m. Yeah. and 7 a.m. on the way late side. That's very cat. Yes, yes. And she will stand outside the door and she will meow. <laughs> and the problem is this is the definition of what they call asymmetric warfare. The cat <laughs> has nothing to lose. The cat could sit there all morning and just make this sound. I am in bed and... <laughs> The less sleep I get, the less uh, effective I'm going to be during the day. So I have a lot to lose in this battle of wills. And I always think to myself, you're not going to win this round, cat. And she always does. So I have to go open the door for her. This is not the simple delight, though. The simple delight is (laughs) when I go get back in bed. Oh, the sleep after you wake up and think you can't get back to sleep. Is always the best sleep when you finally re-relinquish yourself to the slumber. Also, because when you are a person of my age, at least a, <laughs> a, a guy, uh, there's a good chance I needed to also visit the restroom. I ah. rarely make it through a full night. Uh, so so it's sort of this thing where I'm very resentful of the cat. But then on my way back to the bedroom, I make a quick pit stop. Then I get back in bed. It's still kind of warm. Mm. The cat is now outside. My body is now in a state of relaxation and ready to go back to sleep. And that moment is a simple delight that makes the whole procedure worth it. Color me delighted by (laughs) your delight. (laughs) Hey, let's get our first guest on over to the house party. Ross Gay has a collection of essays out. It's called The Book of Delights. Uh, It's a New York Times bestseller. And basically, in almost kind of like a Buddhist practice kind of way, Uh, He decided to just figure out one thing that delighted him every day and write it down. He did this for an entire year. Mm -hmm. Um, And as I said at the beginning of the show, I think we can all kind of use any delightfulness that we can find right now. Um, So let's take a listen to this. It's our chat with Ross Gay recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland back in 2019.
Hi, Ross. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. This book is not to be redundant, but it truly is a delight. Like, it's just so joyful to read it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it should be like they should be prescribing it at the pharmacy, mm-hmm. maybe instead of various drugs that they're prescribing. <laughs> it's like a way healthier way to feel better. Yeah. Good. What, yeah. what, what were the rules of, of the creation of it? You know, I had like three rules. I, you know, I was walking, um, <laughs> I was walking to this writing residency that I had. I was in Italy, and um, it was in a it was in a castle. So I was walking back through, you know, from some espressos to a to my room in the castle, where they were cooking for me. Oh, God! Yeah. And I was like, man, this is delightful. <laughs> yeah. I should write an essay about it, you know. And I thought, yeah, that'd be, that'd be okay. And then I thought, oh, it'd be, it'd be really interesting if I wrote an essay every single day for a year about something that delighted me. So that's kind of the kind of frame of the book. And the, the rules were that I wrote them every day, which I promptly, you know, broke that rule. Uh, <laughs> that I um, write them by hand, and then I write them sort of quickly. Okay. Yeah. You write about the delight muscle in the book. Can yeah. you explain that for folks? You know, it's just like... Yeah. I think I maybe talk about it in the introduction. I I was sort of nervous, you know. I was like, I thought this is this is going to be a challenge, you know, to notice a delightful thing in my day every day. Um, and very, you know, I was sort of I was sort of worried in a way, like, how am I going to do that? And then within two weeks, it just given as this became my job, boom, 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 boom. I sort of realized, oh yeah, yeah, I'm sort of in the midst of a kind of delight often. You know, are you saying that it like sort of opened your aperture to be more aware of it. delight? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Yeah. Um, was it hard to find a delight on certain days, like when you weren't in that flow state? I mean, I could be busy. You know, the days could also would also be filled with sorrow and uh, the rest. Um, but most days, it was more like, oh, damn, that's that's incredible. You know, or that's an amazing thing. And then if I, you know, didn't write an essay about it, it's because I didn't have time or I got busy doing something else. But you were like, did you have a, like a notes app in your phone or something? Like if you'd walk <laughs> by something and be like, oh, that's it. That's today's delight. <laughs> you don't know me good enough to know that that phone comment was like, no, I did not write it in my phone. Are you, are you very anti Well, you know, like, uh, yeah, I f- hate them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Let's talk about that. Because you, in this book, you appear to take more joy in plants and things that are growing than, like, you know, anybody who I've read in a long time. Is that because you're not looking at your phone, you're able to, like, be more connected to the actual physical world around you? I wonder. I mean, you know, I, like anyone, am sort of addictable to those things. So I try to keep them to the extent that it's possible out of my life. But, you know, I do feel (laughs) it's a real thing. Like when you don't have that device to like, instead of like look at the flower or smell the flower, um, you take a picture of the flower, you know. Right. It's kind of nice. Like that sort of mediation between the actual thing that is delighting you and the the thing that has to capture the fact that you've in fact been delighted. Mm -hmm. And it's a little box you know 
It's like when you go to the aquarium and there's one of those walls of mm-hmm. water and there's a jellyfish floating by and you can only see the jellyfish through the phones of the people that are closer <laughs> to the cage yeah, yeah, than yeah, you yeah, are. Yeah, totally. yeah. You're like, I think I'm experiencing Or basically this. at any concert now, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, it's just, it's like a sea of phones. And I am not guilty of that particular one, but I'm guilty of a lot of them. I mean, if I look through my phone, it's a series of cute things that my dog or cat have done <laughs> yeah. that I was obsessed with trying to get footage of. And yeah, I talked yeah. about this on the show a few weeks ago. We had a snake loose in the house that our cat had brought in. And oh. instead of just getting the snake out of the house, I went to try to videotape it. And then the snake got into the... HVAC of our house and is still in there. <laughs> so that Whoa. would be a strong vote against phone yeah. obsession. Amazing. <laughs> um, this this book reads also like a bit of a mindfulness uh, exercise. Have you been a pretty mindful person in your life? Is that a practice that you have? I definitely yeah have a life of going in and out of various kinds of intentional um, meditation and stuff for sure. Yeah. And I, and I think that's exactly right. Like, you know, and, and the way I sort of originally was talking about it and thinking about it was as a discipline. Um, and then, then, then I, you know, that word, I was sort of like, eh. I got more interested in the word practice, you know, that it's a practice, you know, and the, and the practice really is the practice of, you know, noticing what it is that delights you, but maybe more um, to the point noticing what it is that you love. One of the things that you write in here is your mom has not always been keen on praise, <laughs> which I thought was like a very elegant way to say maybe a little holds back a little bit. <laughs> is there a delight even in that? I mean, you're writing about it in a pretty nice way. Wait, is there a delight in my mom being withholding of praise when I was a child? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, could you get that hardcore with it? Yeah, I don't know. You know, all the, like when I, even when I say that, um, you know, she wanted me to get good grades. She was just, but even now when you said that, I was like, ah, oh, but she loved my cummerbund from a uh, ninth grade jazz band. She loved it. That's the cutest little cummerbund I ever saw in my life. She See? said, wow. <laughs> this is the magic of this book yeah. is I, I, you know, halfway through, I get it to a delight day that sometimes it would go to some places that I, I think really radiate a lot of negativity, like mm-hmm. talking about how a lot of popular culture capitalizes on African-American suffering. Mm-hmm. And then there's this twist into this place that shows that delight can have all of these different flavors mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like just reading the book, you're always hitting this like positive high five with what's wonderful, mm-hmm. but it's just, I feel, I feel like now delight has all these mm-hmm. different tones for me. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I have to say too, that I, I listened to the book and Ross reads the audiobook. Having somebody write <laughs> about great delights is one thing, but yeah. have them read them to you for like a week while yeah. it's just, I'm freaking out. It's like, I'm talking to Prince or something right now. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Sorry. we've been Whoops. doing this show for 15 years and no one's ever said that to me. <laughs> I'm writing a, a counter project called The Book of Luke's Petty Sadness. Where every day I write about some BS thing that I am obsessed with that doesn't matter in the world and I'm keeping all the notes for it on my phone. <laughs> this is Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello, well, virtually, because uh, we're at our houses. Um, are you definitely going to have a turkey burger now at some point today, Elena? Has that, has that, it's like Chekhov? 
you mention a turkey burger in the <laughs> first right. act, it better go off by the third. <laughs> the gun on the wall is a turkey yeah. burger. Yeah. Yeah. My problem with that is the delivery system between my cravings and mm. the realization of my cravings requires the entreatment of another person because I'm not allowed right. near any stoves because <laughs> I've set two bags of salad on fire in my life. Um, but I think all the ingredients might uh, just miraculously come back from the market uh, nice. when I make our grocery trip. <laughs> That's savvy. Uh, we're in the midst of playing a conversation for you that we had with the poet Ross Gay last year as part of the Portland Book Festival. Uh, and we've got to take a quick break. Elena's got to work on her shopping list, but mm. do not go anywhere because we will be right back. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. Have you ever noticed how kind of not great you feel after you sit at work all day? Truth of the matter is your chair is probably part of the problem. Most chairs and desks, they restrict movement, which leaves your body kind of achy. Now we'd like to tell you about Fully, designer and collector of standing desks, chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage you to move so you will feel better at the end of your day. Uh, I use a Fully TikTok stool when I am recording these messages. And it has really changed my whole kind of physicality. After a long day, and I know it doesn't sound like a real job, maybe because it isn't, but after a long day of recording things at my home studio, sitting on a TikTok stool, I feel great. I don't feel like I've been ossifying for the last eight hours. I feel like I'm ready to go take on my evening. Uh, so I can't recommend fully highly enough. Get your body moving in your workspace like I've done. Go to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. Fully, desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. Uh, let's pick things back up on stage in Portland at the Alberta Rose Theater. A conversation that we had with poet Ross Gay. We were talking to him about his book, the Book of Delights, uh, in which he basically wrote about something that delighted him every day for a year. Actually, spoiler, some days he didn't do it, but that also <laughs> ended up being kind of delightful too. So check this out. It's live from the Portland Book Festival in November of last year. One of the things that you wrote about in the book that delighted me because it just reminded me of my life was paper routes. Like, did you, were you, you like, had you had a, uh, well, I had a paper out, but m more crucially, our mom got a paper out, <laughs> which sucked for us kids because it meant we got a paper out. Oh. And then she decided on day one after doing the first time, this is horrible. They told her you can't quit for a month. So she had to do it for a month and we would help out. And actually it was kind of a fun memory, but I also had my own paper outs, like weekly paper outs and stuff. And I feel like nobody talks about it. It's like a, formative part of the childhood of and adulthood of a lot of people. What was your experience of having a paper route as a kid? You know, I mean, it kind of sucked and it was kind of lovely, you know? <laughs> it was like me and my brother did it together. Um, we did it from the time I was like 10 years old until the time I went to college, you know? We, we actually got scholarships, literally both of us got little scholarships from the Bucks County Courier Times to, <laughs> wow. to, to go to college. Yeah, we were, we were serious about it, yeah. And then my folks had paper routes, both of them. And then when I would come home from college, I would do my dad's paper route. 
I mean, it was like... That's a real act of love if you do someone in the family's route for them. <laughs> I, I don't mean that, you know, jokingly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was serious. It was serious. Another thing you write about in the book, though, which is kind of the other side of that, is this delight that you have in being able to blow something off. Mm -hmm. Because if you grow up, you know, fi financially on the margins, mm -hmm. there's this extremely pernicious rumor that people who don't have money are somehow lazy or mm -hmm. not on their grind. And it's like, no, you are extremely on your grind. Yep. And like blow, like taking a mental health day is just yeah. not an option for yeah. like many people in this country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and in the end of that essay, I sort of, I talk about probably about a year before my father had died, you know, he was not yet diagnosed and he, with cancer and he, um, I was I was home for some reason and hanging out and he was getting ready to, you know, go to work. And I think I literally said, man, blow it off. Let's go watch Hellboy, you know? And he was like, yeah, I wish I could. I wish I could. Um, and, and that dude worked awful jobs for a long, a long ass time. And never once did I ever hear him say, this job sucks, you know? So the idea of being able to blow something off, to have the the, I guess, privilege or the, the latitude to say, I'm, I'm not going to do the delight today. <laughs> to even have that is, is a delight, as you write in the book. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a delight and a luck. And maybe it's a delight and a luck, too, to be able to be like, you know, even coming back to the idea of capturing the, the thing instead of studying the thing or being with mm -hmm. the thing, you know, the, to blow off recording the flower as a, and, and to actually partake in smelling the flower. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're talking to Ross Gay here on Livewire. His new book is The Book of Delights. Has this changed, this practice that you were doing, has this actually had a, like now that the book is published and out in the world, are you finding yourself able to connect with that more easily, that idea of finding delight in things? I think I am. And I wonder actually now that you say it, I wonder if while I'm thinking about the book, like in the middle of thinking about the book, if I'm a little bit extra alert to it, but I don't think that's the case. I think it's that I do sort of walk around a little bit more just clear about being able to notice um, things that kind of, yeah, just kind of strike me, you know, surprise me with, with how lovely they seem. Or, you know, I'm a little bit more attuned. I think because I've been practicing and studying it, I think I'm a little bit more attuned to like, for instance, when people are very tender with each other in, in ways that just seem like, holding the door, but you know, holding the door is also like holding the door. And so, yes, yes, I can kind of go on and on about that. But. Would you recommend something, you know, um, like a project like this for people? Like, you know, just try to, maybe they're not gonna do it every single day, but to just start to kind of keep track of this stuff? I mean, you know, I think it's worthwhile to like notice, articulate, study and share what you love. I think that's reasonable, you know what I yeah. mean? And I know your, your book of poems before this is the catalog of unabashed gratitude. And now I have the book of delights. Do we have another emotion that's sending you to the next place? You know, in the process of writing this book of delights, it is um, interesting because, you know, as I was writing the book, I was sort of like, I realized, oh, I'm kind of theorizing delight in this book, and which is an interesting thing to do, mm -hmm. to theorize delight and a fun thing to do. Um, but as I kept going on, I, w I realized, oh, my real curiosity is joy. Mm. And I'm, I'm interested in joy. And I don't mean joy like a kind of thing that you can buy. I really don't mean that. 
I mean joy like the sort of deep and abiding understanding which comes sometimes in glimmers or maybe if we're lucky it comes sometimes in like long breaths mm -hmm. that we are fundamentally connected and that kind of luminosity to me is is just so interesting profoundly interesting mm -hmm. you know and when i think about gratitude gratitude and joy seem to be pretty much the same okay. gratitude is connecting to that thing to me what i was just sort of talking about as is love mm -hmm. as is love Awesome. Well, Ross, it has been a joy talking to you. We really appreciate you coming on Livewire. Ross Gay, everyone, it is the Book of Delights. That was Ross Gay talking to us at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland back in November of last year about his book, the Book of Delights. It was part of the Portland Book Festival. Livewire is brought to you by Alaska Airlines. They are working nonstop to support their guests, their employees, and their communities. And they're bringing you next level care. They've thought through every aspect of air travel, and they've implemented nearly 100 new ways to keep flyers safe, from the booking process all the way through baggage claims. Learn how else they're supporting flyers at alaskaair.com. This is the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, as we do each week, we ask the Livewire listeners a question, uh, something going on for them out there in the world as we all sort of, hopefully anyway, continue to shelter in place. We're following the rules. We're all being socially distant and careful. Uh, this week we asked folks, tell us about a simple delight. And people sent those answers in. And uh, Elena, you've got some of them in front of you. What's striking your fancy? Well, these are just delightful. Oh, good. I can use that. <laughs> Here's one from Rosanna G. A small delight is feeding our neighborhood crows. They're no longer scared of us. And they often turn up expecting their peanuts if we are slow to put them out. I have gotten really into the animals in my yard since March. I've named them. There's the Doofer family of deer. <laughs> How'd they get that name? Because they just, I'd see them. I'm like, hey, Doofers. Uh, I know the songs of all of the birds that hang out in the yard. And um, we got wild turkeys. King of the night turkeys is my favorite one. But I want a crow friend to come visit me. And I, I, I'm going to have to call Rosanna because I really want to figure out how I can get them to to come and hang. You know I love crows, so. Yeah, but if you make friends with a crow, make sure you stay on their good side oh, because right. they are smart mm -hmm. and they do not forget a face, mm -mm. literally. No, they know faces. What else are you hearing <laughs> from the uh, audience about small delights? Here's one from Tracy. Oh, this is a good one. Going to open the dishwasher to empty it of the clean dishes and realizing my husband has already emptied it. You know, yes. like you pull the door and you expect it to be full mm -hmm. of these, the, oh, and you have to take them all out and it's just empty, fresh. Oh my God, that's such a good feeling. That is one of those just very small ways to show somebody you live with that you love them and you get so much mileage out of those small gestures. Yeah. Uh, what else? Uh, how about this one from Nat? Outdoor showers. <laughs> now, in the Pacific Northwest, I think they're kind of rare because like you yeah. said, it's kind of chilly and rainy even in July, but... Uh, in South Carolina, where I grew up and where I go home, usually every August, we stay at this weird inn with 
uh, no TV, no internet, and outdoor showers. And after a long day in the beach, you go into just a little, you know, camp shower and you wash all the beachiness off, all the sunscreen, and you feel like, ah, oh, it's so great. Yeah. I did that in uh, Mexico mm. back when, uh, you know, we could fly places. <laughs> right. And I was in Tulum and oh, yeah. I, they had an outdoor shower. And I don't think I'd ever been around one of those in a climate that was conducive to it. Yeah. Because again, the Northwest <laughs> is not really that place. That's a, well, you know what? That's a simple delight. It is. we're talking about on this week's show. Ugh. This is Livewire Radio. We're taking a listen back to some fascinating interviews from last year's Portland Book Festival. Uh, next up, we've got Casey Sepp, whose debut book, Furious Hours, follows Harper Lee. Um, yes, the uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee. As Harper Lee worked on this book that she would never end up publishing, involving a string of killings in Alabama, and the person who pretty much everybody suspected was behind uh, these deaths, a guy named the Reverend Willie Maxwell. Uh, we talked to Casey at the Alberta Rose Theater as part of the Portland Book Festival last November. Take a listen. Hello, Casey. Welcome to the program. Hello, Portland. <laughs> Hello, Luke. Um, this book is just so fascinating, and it, it almost reads like a few different books. There are so many elements to it. Um, how did the story of the Reverend Willie Maxwell get on your radar? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. This is one of these stories that haunted the part of Alabama where it all happened. And it was gripping for the people who lived through it, and intergenerationally people knew about it. But I came to it because of Harper Lee. So, you know, the original story is sensational. You know, a minister accused of killing five family members. He made a half a million dollars in life insurance money off those deaths. He was gunned down by a vigilante at the funeral of his last victim. The same lawyer who had defended him for 10 years then defends the vigilante. So there's all of this embedded drama and narrative to the story, but it got even more exciting in 1977 when Harper Lee found out about it and decided she was going to write a book about the story. So I was reporting on Harper Lee's life for The New Yorker, and I found out about the Reverend. And that's what she was going to call her book about this case. And I thought it was incredibly interesting. There was an asymmetry. The world knew nothing about her work on this case, but to the people in this part of Alabama, she was embedded in the story. You know, they had met her when she was reporting. She had interviewed the lawyers, the law enforcement officers. She had gotten to know relatives of the victims. And she had just spent nine months in this town and made such a big impression. And so I found the story via her. Because she was, at that point, Still, I mean, one of the biggest literary stars in in America, certainly, and maybe even more so because of how um, elusive she had been after the success of To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, quite often, you know, people she would introduce herself to, even in Alabama, where she was probably more famous there than anywhere in the world. Because she was from Monroeville? She was from Monroeville. She's from this tiny town down around Mobile, and the story took place over closer to the Georgia line. And, you know, she was this unassuming 50-year-old woman, kind of salt and pepper hair. And, you know, she'd come and introduce herself and say, you know, I'm Harper Lee. 
I wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. And you can imagine the excitement, you know, if you'd lived through this case or, you know, you had been an Alabama Bureau of Investigation agent and you've talked to reporters over and over again about the Reverend Willie Maxwell, but here comes this unassuming middle-aged woman who says, I'm Harper Lee and I'm working on a book about this. Do you have some time to talk? So for a lot of people like in this Tom town- Like Tom Clancy calling you if totally. you are I mean, an are you aircraft captain. Yeah, exactly. You're like waiting for the call, yeah. like an Alabamian. You can yeah. imagine no one better than Harper Lee to yeah. tell your story. And so there's tremendous enthusiasm, but she was not recognized there. In fact, she had spent most of her adult life in New York City. And I think one of the interesting things about the book for me was getting to go around New York and learn about her Manhattan lifestyle and this kind of cosmopolitan life she was living. But there again, no one recognized her. You know, one of my favorite facts in the book, um, Harper Lee lived most of her adult life in the same building on the Upper East Side, and it was East 82nd Street. And for a little while, she had these two neighbors, Daryl and John, who eventually became known as Hall and & Oates. And they had no idea they were living on the same floor. They were literally on the first floor with her. Had no idea. You know, and I was like, well, you don't remember, like, you know, a lady with a southern accent? No idea. Because nobody recognized her. She was tremendously famous, but not recognizable. Wow. Yeah. Let's, let's take it back to Alabama, if we can, and talk a little bit about this, this guy, the Reverend Willie Maxwell. Who was he, and, 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 and when did he start? being suspiciously close to people losing their lives. Yeah, it's interesting. So he was well-known. He was born in 1925 and distinguished himself both in his army service in World War II and when he came home and started preaching. He was ordained in the Baptist church and quite renowned for his ministry and, you know, was a great extemporaneous preacher, had a thorough command of scripture and was just really sought after around this part of Alabama. And so people knew him as the Reverend or Preacher Maxwell, and he was truly just one of the most well-known preachers in the area. Area. And that was what he was known for until 1970 when his wife, who'd been married to for about 25 years, was found murdered. And he was the prime suspect. And in fact, the police were quite sure they were going to get a conviction. They had a phenomenal witness, mm-hmm. a, a next door neighbor to the reverend who was supposed to testify that he had been out all night. And in fact, that he had called home and lured his wife to the very place where her body was found. That woman, when the case went to trial, changed her testimony. And the police were flummoxed. You know, what, why on earth had she changed her story? And in fact, she provided the reverend with an alibi. She also, a few months after that, became the second Mrs. Maxwell. She so married the she dude. She married the reverend. And so she's the second Mrs. Maxwell. And even more surprising was when she turned up dead under similarly suspicious circumstances. I wouldn't call that surprising. After that. Uh, it was surprising to her, I okay, think. Okay, fair. You know, yeah, fair enough. Um, surprising to her. Um, and, you know, the, the thing to say about her marriage to the Reverend and part of the reason he became instantly notorious in this part of Alabama is her husband had died unexpectedly, and that's why she was able to marry the Reverend. And so over and over again, for the people witnessing these things, they thought that the Reverend Willie Maxwell was able to get what he wanted whenever he wanted it. And the police could do nothing, and the insurance companies could could do nothing, because you can believe the police were upset about these crimes, but the life insurance companies were furious. Because he had policies. He had dozens of policies on single people, and you know, would would take out a policy with 15 different companies and 17 policies total. And so it was really a racket. And and I think for, you know, again, people in the area, there was no mystery about what was happening. It was mysterious how he was actually killing these people, and that was part of what I think 
think when Harper Lee got interested in this case, what was hard for her in writing about it is there's just a lot of mystery about causes of death. In fact, some of these deaths weren't even officially declared homicides. Right, because they couldn't figure it out. 22-year-old nephew of the reverends found dead on the side of the road and in his car, and no cause of death could be determined. He had been seen earlier that day totally healthy. It seemed like he really would go with this move of killing someone and then putting them in a car trying to stage a car wreck, which was never very convincing. The cars were never that damaged. And they were all on the same road, right? The same yeah, basically, <laughs> basically all, I mean, very near his house. And, you know, it's funny. There's a little bit of laughter gurgling up in the room, and, and it's I'm understandable. judging those people, by the way. No, no, it's, you're That's not. That's de- definitely not, the wrong no, no, response. Don't listen to Luke. No, 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 no. You're not being judged. In fact, I mean, this Speak is one of yourself. the peculiar. Okay. You are being judged, but <laughs> only by one third of the panel here. Uh, <laughs> No, I mean, I think it is one of these interesting things about the genre of true crime and about these sorts of stories we tell and the way in which we inoculate ourselves with humor about mm. them. And it is certainly true. You know, I've interviewed people who, who knew the murder victims and, you know, they often got into giggle fits about something or other, or there's some part of the story that always struck them as ironic or comical. And it's hard to know you know, what to do about that and, and how to tell these stories with care and with concern. Mm-hmm. Because I think, you know, especially with the, the the Reverend Maxwell, a lot of people experience this just as a kind of curiosity. And because so many people associated with the Reverend were, were found murdered, two wives, a brother, a nephew, a stepdaughter, there, there were a series of voodoo rumors that got associated with him. So he was an ordained Baptist minister, but the explanation folks came up with was that he was a practitioner of voodoo. And that's how he could get away with it. You know, he could kill somebody, the police could never prove it, he could charm a jury, he could charm a judge, and that's how he was getting away with it. So there's this overlayer to this story that, you know, you, you want to think about carefully and critically. It's, it's the truth. It's how people talked about the story. It's not just something that got added many years later, but it's also the kind of insulation to make people feel safe mm-hmm. and to make sense of why the police could do nothing why the judicial system failed over and over again. And I think it's, again, one of the things that drew Harper Lee to this story, both what happened and how people made sense of it. And this is one of my favorite parts about your book, too, talking about telling a true story, is it's not just about the Reverend Willie Maxwell, and it's not just about this trial. It's about, like, true crime in America. You talk about Truman Capote, who uh, Harper Lee went with him to research the the case that made In Cold Blood, and how maybe I didn't I never thought about it this way, but maybe his style of reporting might have affected the way in which she holds standards for reporting herself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Harper Lee was a snob about a lot of things, <laughs> uh, and she was a snob about genre, and and mm. she was a snob about some of the trends in narrative nonfiction. Um, and she had very conservative ideas about the difference between fiction and nonfiction. And poor thing, you know, some of you all might know this, but um, Truman Capote wasn't born in Monroeville, Alabama, but he spent a few years of his childhood there and a few summers of his adolescent life there, too, right next door to Harper Lee. And he's the model for Dill and To Kill a Mockingbird, and their friendship was formative for the both of them, and formative in ways that nurtured her talent and formative in ways that she op- opposed 
things that he had done and decisions he made and the, the style of his reportage. And so indeed, when In Cold Blood came out, I think she was surprised by its contents. And some of the letters I was able to include in the book express her disapproval of choices he made, mm. fabrications he brought to the story, exaggerations, liberties he took with them. And, you know, she had been there for all of the reporting, so she had strong opinions about what people had actually said and the expectations she had for the framework of that book. And so what she tried to do with the Reverend Willie Maxwell is set herself up in opposition to In Cold Blood. She was going to write a true story. She was going to stick to the facts. She was only going to do the old-fashioned, straight-laced journalism she admired. Now, let me be fair to Truman Capote. She never published her book. Right. <laughs> you know, we get to read In Which, Cold Blood for all the liberties he took. You yeah, know, there is it, a book that we can read and judge and, you know, express our approval or disapproval of. And with Harper Lee, you know, the last third of my book about her life as a writer and what drew her to this case and what made it hard for her to write this story. There are particular things about the Maxwell case that are difficult to write about. And then there was her overall difficulties as a writer. You know, she had um, a drinking problem. She struggled with depression. She was a perfectionist. She had one of the worst case of writer's block of, of anyone I've ever read about. So there were general things that made it hard for her to write and specific things about this case. But at the end of the day, I do feel like I have to be fair to Truman Capote and say, you know, he did write his book. Yeah. <laughs> Were you ever daunted by it? Did you ever worry that you'd be like the second writer who couldn't actually write this story into a book? Yeah, and worse than that, you know, the truth is so so Harper Lee uh, died in 2016. She's 89 years old. And, you know, I was interviewing a lot of her friends and family and folks who had lived through the, the Reverend Maxwell story. The truth is a lot of them are octogenarians. And, you know, I would get these text messages or phone calls where they'd be like, are you ever going to finish that book? And of course, I felt like I was working pretty quickly. I only found out about the story in 2015. The book came out this year. I thought it's not a bad pace. But of course, for them, they'd been waiting 40 years. <laughs> you know, they had been waiting since 1977 for a book like this to come out. So they had a lot of urgency and, and expectation around it. So yes, I, of course, worried sometimes that I would disappoint them and, and not finish. But um, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm glad to say it's out in the world between two covers. You know, the, the cheat in my book and, and the reason I like to think I was able to do it and she couldn't is I made her into a character. You know, right. the last third of my book is her story, and she would never have done that. She was pathologically private. You know, she would never have written the kind of Nancy Drew version of Harper Lee knocking on doors, getting out her notebook, turning on her tape recorder. And I tell you everything I can about her work on this case and her interest in true crime. And there's a lot about her time in Kansas with Capote, and there's a lot about her life in New York. And all of those are things she would never have put into her own version of this. She would have said, I'm not the story. But of course, for us, she is a big part of the story. Yeah, it is just an incredible book. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad to have read it. And I just feel like it was opening a side of the world that I just didn't even know anything about. So Casey Sepp, great work. The book is Furious Thanks Hours. So Thanks for coming on Livewire. That was writer Casey Sepp talking about her book, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. That was one of those books, Elena, that just like I, every page I was like, this can't be real. This all happened. Yeah. Like that book is mind blowing. A real marvel of reporting to uh, be a great summer read. And, you know, a lot of folks are reading To Kill a Mockingbird for summer reading anyway. Oh, so good. Yeah, would recommend. Uh, this right here, what you're listening to is Livewire Radio. It's the Livewire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello. Uh, we have to take a very quick break, but don't go anywhere because coming up, uh, we have music from Colin Hay, and you are not going to want to miss it. Stay with us.
Hey, special thanks this episode to Jeff Parnaby of Portland, Oregon, and Christina Marshall, also of Portland, Oregon. Jeff and Christina are part of the Livewire member community. They're generously supporting our show with a donation each month, and we are extremely thankful for that because it's genuinely how we are able to do the show. So a huge thanks. I'm going to even break out the applause machine. A huge thanks to Jeff and Christina for supporting Livewire. Okay, let's uh, let's hear some music. What do you say, Elena? Yeah. Okay, good. I uh, I don't know what my plan was going to be. If, if for some reason you didn't <laughs> want to hear music this week at this part of the show. You must know that uh, I would always say yes to music, which I do. Thank you for being so yes and. We appreciate it. <laughs> Our guest this hour was at one time the lead singer of the iconic Australian band Men at Work. Um, eventually, though, Men at Work broke up, but Colin Hay uh, has gone on to establish a solo career and a really rabidly loyal fan base Mm -hmm. uh, all over the world, including in Portland, where Colin stopped by the Alberta Rose Theater to play us a song. Let's take a listen to that. Colin, thank you so much for joining us. Nice nice hair, by the way. Oh, thank you. It's a wig, but it's very convincing. Um, I read an interesting thing you said in an interview talking about the... yeah. For the radio audience, Colin seems shocked by that news. <laughs> you, were, you were talking about what it was like to be in this super successful band, Men at Work, and to have that happen pretty early in your career. But then even though the, a lot of that music is still playing on radios worldwide, yeah. when the band broke up, you said that the fan base, because of how that band was mostly known through the radio, the fan base just kind of scattered to the wind also? So you had to kind of like start over or decide, yeah. figure out what kind of musician you were going to be? I, I don't know where they went. <laughs> I have no idea where they went. But there was a lot of them. Like, you think about it, like you sell maybe 15 million records. Wow. You know, like that's a lot of records. I'm not going to trying to brag. I'm just going to go, and, oh, that's, that's phenomenal, you know. And then the band broke up and then I went out on the road. So I was playing to 150,000 people. And then I was playing to like five and I just thought, now that's just weird. You know, it's just kind of weird. So obviously there was very little crossover between, you know, there was a men at work thing. And then when I started off on my own, it was like starting again. But um, Was that hard on, on your it ego? It was hard, but it was something beautiful about it as well. Because I always liked being on my own. And I came to live in, in the United States around 89, 90. And I was having trouble with a drink, you know. And so... I ran away from all my alcoholic friends in Melbourne and came to Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah. Famous for its temperance. Came to Los Angeles. Famous, famous. To clean up. (laughs) And it was really, it worked. It worked really well, you know, because nobody was was calling me up and and, uh, coming around and leading me astray. but yeah, so I started off, I just started going out on the road and there was something very therapeutic about it and there was just a few people in the audience so I developed relationships with people and it was connecting and it was nourishing and people would say to me, please don't stop what you're doing and so I didn't. We've been very excited uh, this week knowing that you're going to be on the show. And as I've mentioned to people in passing, oh, we're having Colin Hay on. I'm amazed at how many 
fans you have, people that are really connected to your music, what do you think it is about the music or you or whatever it is you're doing that really does um, connect with people? Well, I don't really think about that too much because I think that's, I don't know, it's a kind of a dangerous thing to try and delve into. I, I just try and um, talk about things that everyone feels. You know, one of the things that I discovered when I was out on the road was that, you know, I wondered why people would come and see me, you know, after I... I wonder the same thing week yeah, in and week out. Exactly. exactly. Well, you know, you do wonder that because you think, well, they've gotten up off the sofa, they've paid money, they've gotten into a car, they've come to see you, so what, what is it they want, you know? And, uh, you know, they want what you have, you know, what you have to give. And I, and I thought that um, we all suffer the same, you know, peaks and valleys of life. We're all trying to kind of figure out, you know, what we're doing, you know, like... How do we, after you've had breakfast, right? You think, you think now what? <laughs> what am I going to do with the rest of the day? And then the days after that, until I don't have any more days left, you know? And you can kind of almost see it. You look out in the, in the audience and people are going, what, what am I going to do? What's going on? You know, so I don't know. I, I, I get confused about that as well. I think, my, you know, because at, at some point you think, well, this ends. You know, so how do I want to spend my time uh, after I've had breakfast? And I, I, like write, I like writing tunes and just writing words and putting music to them. And it's magical to me. Like, it's a mystery. That's why I don't really analyze it too much. I'm just kind of pleased that I'm still able to do this. And I'm very, you know, very grateful for it because, there's, you know, a lot of people have to go to a job they don't like. You know, I've, I had to do that a long time ago, but I haven't had to do that for 40 years or something of, you know, hey, nice tie, Bob, you know. <laughs> oh, you know what I mean? That's your impression of a person at a normal job? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's good. I think it's good that the music worked out for you because I don't... <laughs> what, what song are we going to hear? Um, it's called Come Tumbling Down. All right. This is Colin Hay on Livewire. This has got a chorus, which is a handy thing for a song to have. Otherwise, you can't really call it a song. Um, but this is your bit, if you'd be so kind. It goes like this. Tumbling down, tumbling down, tumbling down, tumbling down. Come on, baby. Yeah. Dropped a coin in the wishing well, but it's a long time drive. I watched that old greyhound bus kick up dust as a come by. I asked the man in the station, he said, son, just took a look around. There hasn't been a train through here since it all came tumbling down. Tom tumbling down, 
come tumbling down come tumbling come tumbling come tumbling down I'm not a drinking man no more but this is one lad I got lost I've never been much of a dancer but this night I surely was I made it out to the cottonwoods slept with my ear down to the ground And in my dreams I could hear the screams as it all came tumbling down. There's a child sitting on the stairs She's seen everything there is to see But somehow she still cares We took her right on the Ferris wheel Made of glass and steel and such Now it's melting in the sun It's not worth all that much I raised my hands up to the sky As we climbed to higher ground Let's just keep on dancing till it all comes tumbling down. Thank you. That was Colin Hay here on Livewire, recorded back in March. Uh, his latest album is Fierce Mercy. Well, uh, looks like that does it for the show this week, Elena. That went by really fast. Yeah. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Uh, huge thanks to Ross Gay, Casey Sepp, and Colin Hay. Livewire is brought to you in part by Foley, Alaska Airlines, and the Jupiter Hotel. A big thanks this week to the Portland Book Festival. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather Day-Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sepchenko. And Ariana Donneville is our marketing associate. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is A. Walker Springs, Sam Tucker, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. And this episode was mixed by Corey Shreppel and Molly Pettit. Thanks so much, as always, to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Cultural Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank members Hannah Davidson of Portland, Oregon, and Jeff and Ruth Ann DeFrang of Savage, Minnesota. Mm. For more information about the show or how you can listen to our podcast, 
and sign up for our newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Livewire. When we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.